are now tuned in to this week's episode of our podcast. Today, we are going to interview some of the greatest and most influential minds in our field. By sharing our collective expertise, we will show you how to harness, control, and use your own skill set to achieve ultimate success and live the life you want. And now, please welcome your host. Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update. Stugatz here. When you talk to a Dell Technologies advisor, they are focused on you, ready to give advice on everything from laptops to the cloud and offer tailored solutions powered by Intel vPro platform to keep your small business ready for what's next. Call a Dell Technologies advisor today at 877-S-DELL. That's 877-S-DELL. This is the Dan Levitard Show on ESPN Radio. This is the Dan Levitard Show with Stu Gatz. I'm Myron Metcalf. He is Taylor Twelman. We're filling in today. Shows on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80, presented by Progressive Insurance. Always feel free to call in. 888-SAY-ESPN, 888-729-3776. Taylor, great to be with you again, man. How you doing? My man, how are you, fellow Minnesotian? How are you? How are? You? Wait, hold on. I gotta get my Minnesota accent back together. Yeah. So, how are you, pal? Minnesota. I'm good. Believe it or not, there's snow on the ground. I'm sure that's surprising. No way. You. Yeah, that's yeah, crazy. that's surprising. What What is also surprising is that the Cleveland Browns had one job on Sunday and they couldn't do it. Like all you have to do is beat the New York Jets. Now we all know uh, there was a contact tracing situation with the Browns. And Baker Mayfield didn't have his top four receivers. Jarvis Landry and others are out. Uh, two starting linemen, offensive linemen, key defensive players are all out. But you're still playing the Jets, Taylor. And all you have to do to break the longest streak in the NFL, the longest playoff drought, is to beat the New York Jets, and you can't do it. Baker Mayfield, three fumbles, two in critical drives late. How did you assess that game after watching <laughs> Cleveland squander that key opportunity? Well, the Browns are going to Browns, and the Jets are going to Jets. We'll get into that in a little bit here, but the Jets can't even tank well enough to figure that out. But when you really look at what the Browns did, I, I think it's a difficult situation, Myron, to be serious for 30 seconds here, is that you've prepared for the entire game. You're on, you're on the verge of clinching your first playoff spot in God knows how long, and you're sitting there, then all of a sudden your wide receiver core is taken away, and it's how you react. It's how you handle the situation. You and I both know that while it was their backs were against the wall and, and Baker Mayfield couldn't get it done, it, they still had the opportunity. If he doesn't fumble two of the three times, yeah. you and I both know it's 23-23, game goes to overtime, and who knows what happens. But now the fact that the Browns could be the first team since 2008 – to win 11 games and not make the playoffs, it's just another reminder that some of these franchises, no matter what they do, they're still an Achilles heel, Myron. There's still something that holds them back. It's remarkable to think that the Browns might not make the playoffs. This is how fan bases are tortured, right, for 20, 30, 40 years. It doesn't matter the personnel. Doesn't matter the coach, doesn't matter the quarterback. You just find yourselves in this situation. And, I, and I'm sure 
there were Browns fans all over the world looking at this game and they're going, as soon as they heard that report, as soon as they find out that Jarvis Landry and a bunch of guys are out, they knew that this could be the end result. That said, Taylor, has anybody ever had to be 100% to beat the Jets? I mean, has anyone needed everybody to beat the New York Jets? That's not been the case this season. You would expect that the Cleveland Browns could still be competitive, could still win this game, and they had multiple chances down the stretch. It seemed that even Adam Gase wasn't exactly sure what to make of this matchup. Here's what he said after the win over the Cleveland Browns on Sunday. Yeah, I mean, I'm, you're always going to wonder when you lose games and then you win a couple in a row, you kind of you kind of look back and say, hey, what if we did this, this, and this different? But it is what it is at this point. You know, I'm just glad the guys are still fighting, that they, they practice the way they do, they prepare the way they do, and they come out on Sunday, they give everything they have, and they're, they're putting some good games together. Huh. He's, he's Taylor 12. I'm Iron Metcalf here on the Dan Lebertard Show with Stu Gotts, filling in ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and SiriusXM Channel 80. Taylor, you either tank or you don't, right? Like, there's no right. in-between in all this. What are the Jets doing? They, have, they don't even know. They don't even – it's almost as if – and by the way, Adam Gase is talking as if the players just all of a sudden woke up while everyone else on the outside, like you and I, are saying, well, Adam, where have you been? Over yeah. last, like when you collectively say that, that means you too looking in the mirror. And by the way, Sean McVay and the LA Rams should answer your question on how do you lose to the Jets, yeah. even with injuries or not. They were completely healthy and lost at home to the New York Jets. I this is the most mind-boggling story of 2020 for me, Myron, because there is a surefied number one draft pick in next year's draft in Trevor Lawrence. Number two. You and I can't have – we can't have an educated conversation right now to definitively say, well, who's the second pick? And you can't even get that right. You can't even figure that part out. And not only that, you couple it with beating the Browns. Now you've guaranteed yourself. We're not, so now the question is, what do you do with Sam Darnold? It, yeah. like, it, it's remarkable to me, Myron that the New York Jets couldn't even find a way to do this when everyone in 2020 would have quote-unquote excused the tanking because it is what it is with the pandemic, with Trevor Lawrence coming up. No one really would have argued against it, and yet you could even do that right. Sums up that whole Jets culture, right? He's Taylor Twelman. I'm Myron Metcalf here on the Dan Levitard Show with Stu Gotts filling in. Like, this is the Jets. This is the entire organization and franchise. When it was clear that you were going to have a failed season, you just lose and find your way to Trevor Lawrence. Because the gap between Trevor Lawrence, in my opinion, and a Zach Wilson at BYU and Justin Fields is pretty wide. Like Trevor Lawrence Absolutely. is clearly the number one pick in this draft. Absolutely. And then there's everybody else, even though there are some good prospects. So you have to find a way to make that happen in your favor. You can't even do that. You said this was the biggest story in 2020. I'll disagree with you because three teams in the NFC East, Taylor, can still make the playoffs. <laughs> we are going into a weekend where the Dallas Cowboys, the Washington football team, and the New York Giants can all make the playoffs depending on how things unfold on Sunday. How crazy is that? It's hard to fathom. But on the other hand, it's not the first time a team with a losing record is going to win a division, right? So... That's why it's not that absurd. It's absurd the fact that we're talking about the NFC East in Week 16. 
Myron, that like yeah. like yeah. what what are we really doing here? Like seriously, there's not a single team out of that. And the fact that Dak Prescott is out and lost for the year, and here we are. The fact that Andy Darn like it's Andy Dalton can get this team to on the verge of making the playoffs. Um, I just look at the Jets though. It, it's because it it, it kind of encompasses the entire year of 2020, the pandemic. There's no fans. Could you imagine the fans at MetLife yesterday with oh the Jets goodness. winning? Like, just think <laughs> of that. That's crazy. what I'm getting at. Like, they are so lucky the fans weren't there. The fact that that entire stadium would have been booing. And, yeah. I, and I'm not taking anything away from the players because the players don't tank. The coaches don't tank. But you've got to find a way to figure it out. You've got to you find do. a way to get yourself Trevor Lawrence, and you can't get out of your own way. I'll give the NFC East to you, Myron, but I'm telling yeah. you, we'll be talking about the Jets when Trevor Lawrence is three-time Pro Bowler. He's winning Super Bowls for the Jacksonville Jaguars. Oh, God. Yeah. I want to throw up. <laughs> Can't get, get can't get out of your own way. That's the Dwayne Haskins story uh, on PBS or Lifetime at some point, 10, 15 <laughs> years from now. I imagine that'll be the title of that. He's Taylor Twelman. I'm Myron Metcalf. This is the Dan Lebitard Show with Stu Gatz. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. You know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too. Because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to Geico.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. Don Lebatard. And finally, abstaining from food for 16 to 18 hours a day could be key to treating a variety of health conditions like stabilizing blood sugar levels and increasing resistance to stress. Stugatz. Mike, are you doing something like this right now? I lost a lot of weight doing intermittent fasting and low carb, so now I'm getting back to it. But how much in that six to eight hour window, how much can you eat? Unlimited? If I could just eat unlimited, I'd do that. That'd be fun. For six to eight hours. You can't eat unlimited. Try me. <laughs> no, no, I mean... <laughs> this is the Don Lebatar Show with the Stugatz on ESPN Radio. It's the Dan Levitard Show with Stu Gatz. I'm Myron Metcalf. He is Taylor Twelman, and we're filling in on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM Channel 80, presented by Progressive Insurance. Give us a call, 888-SAY-ESPN, 888-729-3776. Before we get to the sound, I think you all should hear. Uh, Taylor, you seen any good movies lately? Yes. I saw Soul yesterday. Okay. Fantastic. One of the best Heard movies I've seen in the last, I'm going to say, six, seven years. Easily. Really? Myron, it's That's a strong unreal. statement. Yeah, you, honestly, whether you have kids or not, you literally are just in the movie. It's fantastic. It's eerily similar to Coco, but the way Disney Pixar threw in some great underlining jokes regarding the Knicks on fan, just the deli- the whole thing. Myron is fa- Jamie Fox was spectacular, and shout out to Doris Burke who got a shout out in the movie. It was great movie. See it immediately. It? Yeah. Oh, man. It's a great movie. Do anything. Honestly. I'm, I cannot wait to see it. Looking forward to I'll probably Don't watch see Wonder the Woman, by the way. That, that's what I hear. I hear I shouldn't watch Wonder Woman, but I should see Soul. So I'll probably watch them in that order. Now I it's live time my for life straight straight talk. via Twitter. I live my life yeah, via Twitter. Me too. And so everyone that tells me whatever they say on Twitter, I live by it. It's the creed. I'm kidding right now. If, if I live by Twitter, <laughs> I wouldn't be talking to you live on radio right now. <laughs> Twitter thinks everything's either terrible or the greatest thing that's ever happened. Uh, Now it's time for Straight Talk, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. 
There's some incredible sound that I think everybody should hear. J.J. Watt, after the Texans lost on Sunday to the Cincinnati Bengals, 37-31. to And you got to hear these stats. The Bengals, no Joe Burrow, put up 371 passing yards, 169 rushing yards. J.J. Watt, it's safe to say, was frustrated by his team's effort. Here's what he had to say after that loss. We're a professional athletes getting paid a whole lot of money. If you can't come in and put work in in the building, go out to the practice field and work hard, do your lifts and do what you're supposed to do, you should not be here. This is a job. We are getting paid a whole lot of money. There are a lot of people that watch us and invest their time and their money into buying our jerseys and buying a whole bunch of And they care about it. They care every single week. We're in week 16 and we're 4 and 11. And there's fans that watch this game, that show up to the stadium, that put in time and energy and effort and care about this. So if you can't go out there and you can't work out, you can't show up on time, you can't practice, you can't want to go out there and win, you shouldn't be here. Because this is a privilege. It's the greatest job in the world. You get to go out and play a game. And if you can't care enough, even in week 17, even when you're trash, when you're 4 and 11, if you can't care enough to go out there and give everything you've got and try your hardest, that's bull****. So that's how. I just, I think it's, that's, there are people every week that still tweet you, that still come up to you and say, hey, we're still rooting for you. We're still behind you. They have no reason whatsoever to. We stink. But they care. And they still want to win, and they still want you to be great. That's why. Those people aren't getting paid. We're getting paid handsomely. That's why. And that's that's who I feel the most bad for is our fans and the people who care so deeply in the city and the people who love it and who truly want it to be great. And it's not. And that sucks as a player to know that we're not giving them what they deserve. Taylor, you hear that sound and what do you think? Oh boy. Um, (laughs) I had a difficult one listening to this Myron because right away I'm looking at it saying, okay, you know what? Everything he says, I agree with wholeheartedly. Absolutely. 100%. Why has it got to be said publicly? Why has it got to be said out here? Well, why you are as equally part of that record as everyone else in that room. And yet publicly you're singling yourself out to being different than those that have contributed to the Cincinnati Bengals without Joe Burrow racking over 300 some odd yards on offense. You follow where I'm going, Myron? Yeah. There's a little bit of J.J. Watt putting himself on a pedestal here where if I'm in that locker room, I'm looking at, well, wait, wait, you didn't play the game? You weren't there? Okay, so you're doing your lifts and you're putting in your maximum effort. How do you how do you know I'm not? That's the pickle here. And while listen, everything JJ Watt has done for Houston, I'm on board. What he did with the Hurt, that's not what this is about. What this is about though is you are part of that team that is 4 and 11, that is a debacle with one of the top 5 best quarterbacks in this league. And yet you are singling yourself out. I get it, Bill O'Brien. Yeah, that top five pick that the Houston Texans should have, it's going to be in Miami. I get all of that part of the story. I have a real issue with that press conference. I have a real issue with that statement if I'm in that locker room. I'm looking at J.J. Myron saying, uh-uh. uh-uh. You, weren't part of, you weren't on the field. You weren't part of this team. Why are you different than us? 
He's Taylor Twelman. I'm Myron Metcalf filling in on the Dan Levitard Show with Stu Gatz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. So as my teammate, you're saying, Taylor, you got to say that to me directly. If you say it publicly, I lose respect for you. I mean, have you lost respect, would you, if you were his teammate and you heard that? Uh, No, because J.J. Watt has earned a little bit of a longer leash, for lack of a better word, to do things a little differently. I just have a problem with the message that he's delivering over 90 seconds, Myron, is if he is the head coach and I'm playing for him. That's my point. I have 0.0 problem. If he says that to me in the locker room at a much higher indifferent profanity, all of that, I don't care about that. But publicly, J.J. Watt has made himself look as if he's different than the other 50-some-odd players in that locker room. And by the way, you're as equally part of that team that's 4-11 and right now. Yeah. Giving up 530-plus yards to the Bengals will put they, a man through a lot of emotions, I think. Yeah, that's right. a lot of emotions. That's a lot of emotions from J.J. Watt. Uh, Am I'm I too sure harsh, was- Myron, for you? No, no. I, th- I think, t- to me, I would feel some type of way if I'm in the locker room and I heard that. Uh, because I would want you to tell that to me directly. If I'm not getting the lifts in, if I'm not meeting the mark, tell me. Absolutely. I don't know what doing that publicly, how that really helps the team going forward. That was Straight Talk Wireless. No contract, no compromise. Again, he was Taylor Twelman. I'm Myron Metcalf here filling in on the Dan Levitard Show with Stu Gotts. And coming up next, we have an incredible guest whose name slips my mind because it's not on the screen, but that's okay. I know it's an NFL guest. Mike Tannenbaum. It's going to be great. Mike Tannenbaum is coming on to the show. We're going to talk to him about everything that happened on Sunday in the NFL. Next on ESPN Radio. It's, oh my God, the NBA it almost is sacrosanct. I mean, people are on the ground ripping open testing kits. We all have. It's no way we all don't have it you knew that the direction of the entire 2020 year for the whole world just took a massive turn 30 for 30 podcast presents march 11th 2020 available now wherever you get your podcasts Don Lebatard. Dan cheer that type of stuff. Tom Brady went down with an Achilles the only time he got hurt in his entire career, and I was fist pumping in my living room at home because the Jets finally had a chance to win a division. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm not going to apologize for that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not going to apologize <laughs> for that is one of the most amazing sentences you've ever uttered. Stugatz. From the maker of Trust Me, Don't Trust Me. <laughs> Comes, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to apologize. <laughs> you are amazing. Thank you. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you are a flabbergasting delight. You happen upon genius comedy by accident. <laughs> That's my gift. This is the Dan Lebatar Show with the Stugats on ESPN Radio. This is the Dan Lebatar Show with Stugats. I'm Myron Metcalf. He is Taylor Twelman. This is on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM Channel 80, presented by Progressive Insurance. 888-SAY-ESPN, 888-SAY-ESPN. If you want to join us, we are now joined by the one and only Mike Tannenbaum, ESPN NFL front office insider. Mike, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. There was a lot of chaos on Sunday, a lot of major things that are going to affect the playoff picture. What stood out most to you? Yeah, great to be with you guys. Just, I would say, the NFC East, right? Um, despite it's all its trials and tribulations, we're going into the last weekend, and remarkably, three of the four teams are still alive. Mike, is that an indictment on the NFL playoffs? 
because I just I, I know it doesn't happen that often, but the fact that we're going to have a team host a play like where were you when you were a general manager? Where are you now? Just on the fact that this still can happen because we often get into this conversation. You you've had this behind the scenes at Get Up and whatnot. You know, do we really need to have the Washington football team in the playoffs at seven and nine? Yeah, Taylor, I've always been one for let's have the top six teams and let's have team number one and team number two, regardless of divisions, winners, because the second best team in each conference may happen to be in the same division as somebody else, and they shouldn't be penalized uh, by that. And clearly, like when you look at Cleveland and Baltimore, for example, they may have earned the right to host a, a playoff game this year, but because they're sitting behind Pittsburgh, that won't happen. So I think there is something about if we want to make this a true meritocracy, let's go with the top six or seven uh, teams in each conference, regardless of what division. He's Taylor Twelman. I'm Myron Metcalf. This is the Dan Levitard Show with Stu Gotts. We're joined by Mike Tannenbaum. Uh, Mike, I like to see dominant teams going into the playoffs because I think the playoffs are more fun when it's clear everybody's chasing one team. Kansas City has not looked that part necessarily. They're winning games but not in the dominant fashion that we expect. What, if any, concerns uh, should we have about that? Yeah, Byron, that could be uh, describing their greatness because they've won so many games this year with their B and C game. And yesterday was a great example. That game should have gone into overtime. That was the first time that Koo, uh, the kicker for Atlanta, had missed a kick inside 40 yards. So um, I think Patrick Mahomes truly is Michael Jordan. I think he's that good. Um, and they're going to have to crank it up a few notches. But the fact that they're winning um, at 80% or 75% still says a lot about their greatness. And, and I think they are clearly the team to be in the AFC. Stay in the AFC then, Mike, because we saw a great comeback with the Pittsburgh Steelers yesterday against the Indianapolis Colts, 21 unanswered points. Is it fool's gold, or do they have a slim chance of maybe you know, catching the Chiefs and, and surprising them? You know, in, in a one-game season, they could because they have such dominant skilled players. But two things concern me, Taylor. One is they can't run the ball at all. And at mm-hmm. some point, you have to be able to run for a yard or two, which they couldn't do at the goal line. They went shotgun on second down. This is Pittsburgh Steelers. That's remarkable. And then my other concern is they lost two really good players on defense, Bud Dupree and Devin Bush. And those are difference-making players. And T.J. Watt, while he's still great guys, when you're double teamed on every snap, it just isn't the same. So um, in a one-game season, you never know, but I do think they have fallen back at least a notch or two. Adam Schefter reports that NFL executives think that the Bears have to consider signing Mitchell Trubisky. Mike, what are the options for the Bears when it comes to the up-and-down Mitchell Trubisky? You know, Myron, for me, I would bring him back, but I would bring him back on a contract that was you know, somewhat team-favorable and have him compete with somebody like Jameis Winston and have them just, you know, again, go into camp and have, you know, who's ever the best player play. If you go over the last three weeks, guys, Houston, Minnesota, and Jacksonville, those are the last three teams that Chicago's played, and he's yep. thrown the ball exceptionally well. Uh, he was over 70% against Houston and Minnesota, and he completed 68% of his passes yesterday. So his accuracy is improving, but you can't ignore four years of inconsistency either. Yeah, that, that's the hardest thing for me, Mike, especially now when you look at the Philadelphia Eagles and what they've done with Carson Wentz, and now they're going to be handcuffed with that sour cap implication. Like, you can't really bring him back, can you? 
Well, again, I think if you do tailor, it has to be on a contract that's team favorable with not a lot guaranteed. And, and again, have but him would he do that now? But you may have a young quarterback that's actually ascending. I, I guess that would be the best rationale. Um, yeah. Here's the other interesting variable, which is Trubisky may say, you know what, you decline my fifth year option and I want a fresh start. So, you know, we're focusing on the bear side of it, but you know, he may want to go to a team like just to pick a name, like a 49ers where he wants to spend a year or two learning from Kyle Shanahan um, and get out of that market where, you know, whether it's fair or unfair, everything in Chicago is about, well, this is the guy that they took instead of Patrick mm-hmm. Mahomes, or this is a guy they took instead of Deshaun Watson. And that's something that when you have to deal with that every day and you have the option to go someplace fresh, you know, that may be something that he wants to consider. He's Mike Tannenbaum. I'm Myron Metcalf, joined with Taylor Twelman, filling in on the Dan Levitard Show with Stu Gatz. I'm going to give you these names, Mike, and I want you to tell me uh, the chances that they're with new teams in 2021. Jimmy Garoppolo, Matthew Stafford, Matt Ryan, Carson Wentz. Which of those four quarterbacks will be in a new uniform next season? Yeah, there's likely uh, at least a couple of them, but you know, I would say you know Garoppolo for sure. I think he's had a chance to show greatness in San Francisco. He had a chance to win the Super Bowl last year. He didn't get it done. He's only played in six games this year. I wouldn't be surprised to see them start someplace else. And obviously, the other notable name that you mentioned is Carson Wentz. You know, that's a very complicated situation given his contract. But um, if I'm them, I got to be really sure about Jalen Hurts because Carson Wentz has played at a really, really high level. To me, it just seems from the neck up, guys, he has no confidence whatsoever. Um, and that may be a situation where you know both sides need a fresh start, but very complicated situation in Philadelphia. What do you think ends up happening here in New England? Because I, I, honestly, Mike, I, Myron asked me that question, and I said I, I could see Matt Stafford, but if Jimmy G is available, it, it's almost a no-brainer, isn't it, for Bill – and the Patriots to bring Jimmy G back? Yeah, I, I like that idea a lot, Taylor. I think he fits what Bill likes to do, which is you know, a smart, mobile quarterback. I was wrong on Cam Newton. I thought that was a great signing. Cam just doesn't seem to be the same guy you know, after his injuries. I think Jimmy G and possibly drafting uh, a quarterback in the first round. You know, This year, there could be upwards of a half a dozen when you consider Terrell Lawrence and Justin Fields and you get into the Trey Lances of the world and Zach Wilson. So this may be the year that you know, they have to invest a first-rounder in a quarterback and then maybe try to hold serve with Jimmy G for a year or two. Mike, as always, we definitely thank you for your time. All right, thanks, guys. Have a great holiday. Thanks, Mike. He's Mike Tannenbaum, ESPN NFL front office insider. I'm Myron Metcalf, joined by Taylor Twelman on the Dan Levitard Show with Stu Gotts. The Dan Levitard Show is presented by Progressive Insurance. Drivers who save with Progressive save over $750 on average. Call or click today and find out if they could save you hundreds on your car insurance. Next up, Stu Guys likes to give you his weekend observations each Monday, but today we'll give you one of our big takeaways from week 16 in the NFL. This is the Dan Levitard Show on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Don Lebatard. Dave Coulier is with us. Did you see the Shandling documentary Judd Apatow did? Stugatz. Yeah, I was in it. This is the Don Lebatard Show with the Stugatz on ESPN Radio. The Dan Lebatard Show with Stugatz. Myron Metcalf is filling in. Taylor Twelman, if I could talk. Uh, it is on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, 
and SiriusXM Channel 80 presented by Progressive You're filling Insurance. in for Stu Gatz per- perfectly. I guess I, I am Stu Gatz, actually. That's what I meant to say. I'm <laughs> Stu Gatz today. He's Dan Levitard. Uh, give us a call at 888-SAY-ESPN, 888-729-3776. If you care to uh, offer an opinion on what we're doing today, today is the day for doing, and it's time for our one observation the Dan Levitard Show is brought to you by The Home Depot with everything you need to do projects smarter, faster, and easier. Welcome to today's Home Depot, how doers get more done. Now, I can attest to that, Taylor. You walk into Home Depot, and I don't care what your challenge is, they're going to fix it. I assure oh, yeah. you. All you got to do is just find that one dude who's like 68 and retired, like he's yep. just waiting for you at the door. He will show you how to do anything in your house, man. I promise you. I've had great And experiences. I'll promise you one thing, that I will end up going home after everything that gentleman or woman <laughs> told me, and I'll end up Googling it 10 times because I forgot about 90% of what they said. <laughs> yeah. I just, I'll take notes, man, and I'll just have them take me specifically to uh, the part of the store and get everything I need to get. There was some and that dude's great- name is always Larry or Jack. <laughs> it's always- it's always it's always and you know what he just walked in he's not even officially an employee he just grabbed a jacket and just started showing people around it's my next door neighbor that every time i go to do something he comes outside he's like oh you're gonna do it that way and i'm like shut up larry (laughs) he's not even on the clock Uh, a lot of great (laughs) takeaways from this weekend's action uh a lot of things have happened leading up to this weekend the final week of the season playoff implication this is our segment about biggest takeaways. Taylor, for you, what was the thing that stood out the most? Accountability. And you and I earlier in the show played the whatever it was, 90-plus seconds of J.J. Watt calling out the Houston Texans, calling out his team and the effort in and around that building and how they gave up over 500 yards to the Cincinnati Bengals. And I went on this tangent about I just struggled – with that sound and, and that J.J. putting himself out almost ahead of the coaches and ahead of the players, including Deshaun Watson and whatnot. And yet when I heard this sound from Baker Mayfield, while we look at the disappointing game that Baker Mayfield and the Cleveland Browns had, my biggest takeaway was accountability. Listen to Baker Mayfield after the game. There's no excuse. Uh, plain and simple, I, I failed this team. I put three balls on the ground. Uh, two of them that, you know, they recovered, and then the other that on the fourth down obviously need to just hold on to the damn ball. So, uh, plain and simple, um, I have to hold on to the damn ball. Uh, I failed this team. Uh, we had exactly what we needed to win this game, uh, and I didn't do good enough, and that's that's it. There's there's nothing. I'm proud of these guys for being able to step up. I mean, these guys didn't even think they were going to play. So, uh, for, for anybody to criticize them, uh, shame on you. It put it on me for, for not doing my job. For not playing at a high level like I like I should have, uh, for for not getting these guys uh, going and, and finishing out this game, so that, you know, got to hold on to the ball uh, during QB sneak. Myron, we've had Baker Mayfield jokes all over ESPN Radio, all over all the platforms here at ESPN regarding his progressive insurance commercials, more commercials than touchdown passes, all those jokes that we've had, and yet that was real. Now you yeah. and I both know. We don't know exactly what he said to the teammates in the locker room, but that's not for us to hear. What he said publicly is, no, 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 put it on me. I've got it. That is my biggest takeaway because that, one, shows maturity from Baker Mayfield. But, two, it tells me 
that the environment around the Cleveland Browns, while I joke, you joke, and everyone else says the Browns are going to Browns and not make the playoffs and still win 11 games, the point being there's an attitude switch, there's a culture switch, and that sound right there tells me that whatever's going on in Cleveland in 2020 is leading this team in the right direction. Now, obviously, Browns fans hope they make the playoffs, and I still think they will. You still listen to that sound. Myron, I'm a buyer. I'm buying that. It's just smart. Uh, it's smart leadership. I mean, it's what you want to see in that circumstance 100%. I mean, listen, he, he didn't have his top receivers. I think Taylor, I think Kevin Stefanski went to like a local L.A. fitness before the game and just started rounding up as fast as dudes he saw, you know, at the basketball court. Like, I don't even know these dudes play ball. So they didn't have the real team, but you definitely want to see a guy come out and say, you know what, don't put it on those dudes. Definitely put it on me. Ryan Matlock, real quick, did I mess up the observation thing? I think I messed up the takeaway thing. Weren't you supposed to say something in that, and I messed it up? Did I do that? No, you nailed it. You did really oh, did well. I, did I nail yeah, it? The, the thing okay, you're screwing up sure. is this part right here where we're, you know, we're starting to uh, second-guess ourselves. Yeah, yeah, okay, I didn't, no. I didn't know, man. I just no, want to make Myron, sure. Myron, while you're going on about who nailed it, do we've got we've got Adam from Phoenix, don't we, Ryan? We sure do. You we would, do. You would Adam, like just, just yeah, Adam, just just <laughs> tell everyone in the world how I nailed the JJ Watt sound. It was ridiculous. I mean, once again, he steps up on the pedestal, throwing his teammates under the bus, looking like the shining knight. Perfect Stu Gott's take, by the way. I feel like Stu Gott's would have eaten this up. But once again, J.J. Watt just stepping out there, making himself look like the knight in shining armor when everyone else is just the peasants that he has to deal with. And thank you for nailing that take. Adam, thanks Appreciate for joining it, us. Happy New Year. See, Myron, I told you. We, see, you we nailed it. this segment. Told you. So, t- Taylor, if you're J.J. Watt, what would you have rather seen? Like, what, what does he say in, in that moment, in that situation? I don't think he needs to say anything. You're four and eleven. He just doesn't mention we know it. that. We know what you are. We've seen what you are. We know what Bill O'Brien has done to your organization. We don't need you don't need to put yourself in front of everyone else, including your interim head coach and including to a certain level, your star quarterback, Deshaun Watson. Like that that's where uh uh-uh, I'm out. Lose it. Yeah. I think you, you bring up the right name. If Deshaun Watson says that, I think we see it differently. Absolutely. If Watson gets up there and says, these guys aren't doing what they're supposed to do, then I think we have a different take. But because it's J.J., you kind of go, okay, was that necessary? Are you calling out the entire team? Uh, Are you only calling out a a handful of guys who aren't doing what they're supposed to do? Maybe you address them directly. Bottom line is, it's a mess in Houston, and how could anybody be surprised based on what we've seen. Next up, let's dial up the confidence meter. How are we feeling about five contenders in the AFC? This is the Dan Lebatard Show on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Dale, you're listening to the Dan Lebatard Show on ESPN Radio. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. Fortunately, GEICO makes it easy to bundle your home and car insurance. It's a good thing, too, because having a home is hard work. Go to GEICO.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. GEICO.com. Easy. So as you know, I've been in the podcasting space for a very long time now. Somebody came up to me the other day and they're like, Pat, dude, you're one of the old guys in the space. I love it. You've been doing this for so long. And I'm like, 
Thank you. <laughs> anyway, I've been really lucky to produce some really successful podcasts, multiple podcasts and also courses. And part of my success is due to how particular I've been with some of the tools that I use. And in the podcasting space, my favorite tool is Buzzsprout. It is hands down the best tool for starting a podcast in 2021. It's amazingly easy to use as a podcast host. It's backed by a team that really cares about your success. They've been on the show before as guests, in fact. And like all podcasting hosting services, they get your show listed in all the major directories with, I think, like one click. You can make it happen, almost one click. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, et cetera. But what makes Buzzsprout different is they actually provide some really cool advanced tools that take the time to ensure everything is super easy to use. They have this thing called the magic mastering feature, which is so cool, which means literally you just flip a switch and every episode you upload is gonna be mastered properly, which matches all the levels in your show. So if you have somebody who's really soft, it's gonna bring it up. And that way, if a person's listening to your show in the car, they don't have to like turn it up when somebody's soft and then their ears blow out when you come back. It's just so, so good. All of this and so many features I didn't mention are available in Buzzsprout with plans starting at just $12 a month. They're an absolute wonderful partner and I've worked with them to offer my listeners an additional 33% more time on whichever plan you choose. Yes, if you go through our link, you get 33% more time added to your account. So let's make 2021 the year you start a podcast. Just head over to smartpassiveincome.com slash buzzsprout. Again, that's smartpassiveincome.com slash buzzsprout. And I'll see you on all the directories. Let's do this. You know, I love brands that want to sponsor the podcast who I've already worked with and have used before. And today I'm super grateful to be working with HelloFresh, which if you didn't know, they send you free pre-measured ingredients and super amazing recipes delivered right to your door. And they let you skip the grocery store and they let you cook at home with just all the stuff right there in that box. And I've used them. I love it especially because it brings my family together. We can cook together. We can eat together. It's affordable. And that's why it's America's number one meal kit. And I recommend you should check them out. So not only are they great, but they have a lot of options too, right? 23 plus recipes each week, a lot of flavors, cuisines, ingredients you'll never get bored of, which is really important. I've used others before, but I found out why most people love HelloFresh. It's because of the variety, the different kinds of healthy options as well, low-cal, carb-smart, vegetarian, pescatarian options every single week. No matter what you choose, it's super fresh. And they offer you flexibility with your plan. Like you can change and customize it every week if you'd like, and delivery days, food preferences, etc. You could skip a week if you want. It's just super cool. And again, the fact of the matter is anything that brings my family closer together and has us eat healthier, in my opinion, is always a good thing. So Go to HelloFresh.com slash SPI10 and use code SPI10 for 10 free meals, including free shipping. Again, that's HelloFresh.com slash SPI10 for 10 free meals, including free shipping. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host, at one point when he was younger, he thought Ghost was one of the scariest movies out there. Pat Flynn. Whew, 2020. 2020 was a ride, and a crazy one at that. But here at the end of the year, we have literally two days left at the time that this episode goes live. And I wanted to spend some time with you, going back into time, in fact, in the DeLorean, traveling all the way back to January 1st, 2020, before all the craziness began, in fact, and we're gonna go month by month, and I'm just gonna recall some of the conversations, some of the lessons, some of the challenges, some of the struggles, some of the things that we've overcome, some of the possibilities, some of the opportunities that have since come around during this year. 
And as we go into 2021, I wanna wish you all the best. I wanna thank you so much for being here and for being a subscriber, for being a fan, for all the positive comments and all the constructive criticisms that have come my way this year. I think all of us have had a lot to learn and have had a lot to deal with for sure. And of course, it is those who understand that no matter what happens, that there are possibilities, that there are opportunities. Those of you who have taken on to those and taken hold of those opportunities, I wanna congratulate you. And that doesn't mean if you didn't, that all is lost, because guess what's coming around the corner? A brand new year, 2021, and I'm looking forward to spending it with you. We have a lot of great episodes coming your way. In fact, somebody who is one of the only podcasts that I listen to He will be coming on the show at the first of the year. He's a surprise guest, and I'm really excited to share how he's been able to combine both podcasting in the audio format that we all know, and YouTube, and in fact, his YouTube channel is doing even better than his audio podcast. And again, like I said, he's somebody that I listen to daily. I can't wait to introduce him to you, as well as the many, many guests that we've already had on to record and are ready and edited and coming your way. So if you haven't yet done so, make sure you hit that subscribe button. But I wanna go back in time. I wanna take the DeLorean back to January 1st and month by month, I just wanna kinda go over the the set list, if you will, and some of the highlights. I mean, every episode had highlights for sure. And of course, you can always go to any of the sessions. You can go to smartpassiveincome.com to check out the archive or even the archive inside of the app that you're listening to right now. But I wanted to remind you about some of the things that we discussed, some of the challenges that we've had, and the topics that we discussed, in case you wanna go back and listen to them. We may pull in clips from these episodes as well, if there are any special moments, and I can't wait to share them with you. So let's, in fact, go back to January 1st, where we had a conversation with a very, very well-known author. His name is Patrick Lencioni, very sort of Italian, right, Lencioni. I don't know if that's, in fact, how you pronounce it, but what I can pronounce is the fact that his book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, it was one of the best reads that I've had in the past couple of years. Most useful for me, especially as a new leader for a new team, we ended up acquiring a company to take on that team and actually hire them as employees for Team SPI. It is now known as SPI Media. Flindustries has branched off and it's become the YouTube channel, my books and, and my workshops, my coaching, anything that I do specifically just me is at Flynn Industries. SPI Media is now this company and you have gotten to meet several of the other team members this year from Matt to everybody has stepped up this year on Team SPI and a big shout out to Team SPI for continuing the mission to support you, the entrepreneur, and help you get closer to achieving your goals and making it easier for you and making you feel connected and and, and hopefully a sense of belonging with that as well. But episode 404 with Patrick Lencioni was so good. And I had so many comments. I mean, it was a perfect way to start the year because I know a lot of you had been building your teams too. And if you are going to build your team in 2021, that's definitely one to listen to. His book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, we in fact read it as a team before I brought Patrick on the show. And that was just like, that was just solidifying everything that we had learned together as a team reading his book. And what this book tells you are different scenarios and ways and things that teams must have in order for the teams to work. And if there's not trust, if, if there's not, you know, I'm not gonna cover the book specifically here, but again, I would highly recommend reading the book and listening to that episode. We do cover all five of those dysfunctions. And I remember just such a professional conversation that we had and Patrick having so much 
experience helping Fortune 100 companies, Fortune 500 companies, and so many of our friends. Definitely one to follow for sure. Mid-month in January, we also spoke about email marketing. Email marketing was a big component of the year. We had launched our course that we had beta tested at the end of 2019 called Email Marketing Magic, and then we launched it publicly at the beginning of 2020, and we had some podcast episodes to support that. In fact, episode 406 was about the seven do's and don'ts of email marketing success. So we talked about 14 things essentially, seven things you should do and seven things you shouldn't do. And if you haven't yet started your email, you have to do it in 2021. I can't, I mean, you know what? I've had the pleasure of watching a lot of my friends get very, very adamant about things they truly believe in and how much their brand has grown because people become you know, sensitive to what they preach and what they say and what they become known for. And I have to say that there are two things, I mean, there's many things that I say, but there, a requirement to succeed in business today, in my opinion, is having an email list. I'm also very adamant about building super fans and not just focusing on the numbers and uh, you know the credit card numbers behind each of those numbers and the potential subscriber, reader, follower, listener, viewer, but the human behind it too. But with email marketing, it's still a direct connection to your audience, especially as a lot of people in the startup space has been calling out Facebook and YouTube for putting up quote unquote walled gardens where yes, we might get a subscriber, we might get a follower, but yet our messages don't even get across to them because we either have to pay to play or know exactly how the algorithm works. And with email, yes, you're still competing, but you're not competing with algorithms. You're competing with other people who are emailing them too. So do definitely focus on creating really good subject lines Don't use words that trigger your email to spam. So just a little bit of a preview there. Make sure to go listen to episode or session 406, all of these and the short links to the show notes page. And of course, I'll remind you with the numbers, Patrick Lencioni, 404, do's and don'ts of email marketing, 406. If you go to smartpassiveincome.com slash session, 406, that'll take you directly to that episode in case you're curious. And it'll take you to the show notes and all the links and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, we had launched Email Marketing Magic. Over 300 people came in and it was definitely a wonderful way to start the year. This is actually, and that was in February when we launched the course. It went so well that because of all the time and effort I put into launching it, I didn't have time to shave. And as a result of launching really successfully, I decided that I wasn't gonna shave my beard until the next launch. And I called it for a while, my lucky launch beard. And for anybody who has seen me on YouTube or Instagram lately, you know that this year I've had a beard, but I did not shave it off. I still have it at the time of this recording. I don't know when I'm gonna shave it off, but we'll see. But this thing that became the lucky launch beard (laughs) eventually turned into the COVID beard and myself and several other people have since grown beards. And first of all, I didn't even know it was possible for me. Anyway, enough beard talk. Let's talk about February. So we had this very successful launch, but amidst the podcast archive during this time, on February 12th, episode 410, we invited a man on the show, his name, Mark Bownis. And Mark had a very, very emotional story. He is known for helping people build tribes, especially on Facebook, having communities and using Facebook groups to grow them. I highly recommend if you are involved in creating Facebook groups and you wanna really understand what it's like to build the culture there and and, and have a sense of belonging and tribe, which is of course what I talk about in my book, Superfans, quite a bit, and he takes it to a whole new level. He was very close 
to taking his life at one point. He was rock bottom. The title of the episode, how building a tribe took this man from rock bottom to massive business success. And Mark, who is out of Australia, had done some amazing things to bring people together and as a result was not just able to save his own life, but save other lives too. And that was a very emotional story. It's just coming to mind as I'm looking at the list of episodes that came out this past year. Then in March, March was a interesting time. We had launched Power Up Podcasting again, and that was really exciting. Mid-launch, and this was right after Social Media Marketing World, I'd just seen my best friend Chris Ducker and everything was fine. They were just talking about at the event, you know, hey, fist bumps and elbow bumps only because this thing is happening over in China. And then all of a sudden, after Social Media Marketing World, the lockdowns. And this is when we had to actually pull back from our promotions. We had all these emails, we had everything going and, and automated. And of course, we just couldn't ignore what was happening in the world. So we pulled back our marketing efforts to be sensitive to what was happening. We didn't wanna be tone deaf and we wanted to lead by example in that case. And we didn't know what was gonna happen. And I don't think anybody else did. And it was interesting because at the end of the month, we invited a good friend of mine, Grant Baldwin, on the show. And Grant was talking about presentations and how you can prepare for your presentation. That was a very memorable episode for me because we had discussed as if you were gonna do your first presentation, you, the listener. And we had said, okay, let's play the scenario, a listener, they're going to the event for the first time. What should they do to prepare? What should they do when they get there? What are things they should do when they get on stage? And that was interesting because, of course, now stages are completely different. The stage is now virtual. I've switched from doing a lot of keynote presentations in person. I had to cancel all of my chats, all of my talks, and I've been doing a lot of virtual conferences, and a lot of the same stuff still applies. Grant came out with a new book, and I highly recommend listening to this episode if you wanna get introduced to this world of public speaking. And now the cool thing about this is public speaking is now more able to be available to more people. It's much more accessible because now we don't have to travel. I found that this was the case as well when I hired Brittany Lynn, who is a student of mine. She was in my accelerated program. That program has since ended, and she had helped me with PR. And this is fast forwarding a little bit to July and August, but PR and getting on television to do news shows was very simple because worldwide or nationwide at least, everybody was just calling in from Zoom or Skype. And so I was able to get access to Washington, to Oregon, to Florida and Arizona, and I was seen in news channels everywhere. And a lot of the story on those interviews were about how I got laid off in 2008. And now in 2020, 12 years later, massive layoffs, record numbers of unemployment, and a lot of people struggling. So Brittany was able to position the story in a way where my story from 08 was very helpful because I wanted to present to you, all of you and everybody who was watching on these news channels, that this was an opportunity. This was a time that we now have to make a decision on what our future is gonna be like. Do we wanna choose to make a decision and go down the path of woe is me and I'm just gonna wait around for things to happen or are we gonna grasp and take hold of the opportunities that are in front of us? And so big shout out and thank you to my PR person, Brittany Lynn. You can find her at Brittany L. Lynn, L-Y-N-N dot com. Now let's head into April. April, things were getting kind of crazy again. We, again, didn't know what was happening. A lot of school-related decisions were being made. I remember at the time, 
we had thought that the kids would be back in school by Easter. And of course, that didn't happen. And they're still not back in school at this point, even at the end of December here. We'll see what 2021 brings, but we're definitely playing it safe. And I know a lot of people were playing it safe too. So big shout out to teachers for being adaptable and getting into this new world that we've never been in before and still doing your best to teach and educate our kids. And I know it's been a struggle for sure. This is why on the income stream, every single dollar and super chat that was donated on the income stream, this is a donation that can come in through my YouTube channel, was donated to teachers in September, October, November, and December. And if you are a teacher, thank you for what you do. This year has been crazy, but in addition to helping kids learn, you're also adaptable. And I wanna commend you for that. I wanna recognize you for that and thank you for doing what you do. Going back to April, uh, I was really excited to chat with Jordan Harbinger. And Jordan Harbinger is somebody who you might remember, he was on the show uh, a year and a half ago, about how he was laid off essentially from his own team. He got let go from his own, his, he, so he was the host of the Art of Charm podcast and his own team members kicked him out of the business. And he was sort of like left to figure things out. And it was Jordan and the connections that he had, the relationships that he had built that allowed him to ask for help to a point where it wasn't weird, but it was just what a friend would do to a friend. And now Jordan and his show, The Jordan Harbinger Show, is doing even better. And he's awesome. And he was able to have the amazing late Kobe Bryant on the show before Kobe passed away. And that was a tough time. I mean, we had so much stuff happen in 2020, right? From the fires in Australia to kick off the year to COVID and just everything, right? There was so much stuff. And Jordan, he was on the show to talk about how he's able to get high profile guests on your podcast or how to have them as guests on your show if it's a video show. So that happened early April in episode 418. And Jordan and I have continued to stay connected with each other, primarily because we are now both advisors to Squadcast. And Squadcast is really amazing. It is a tool that you can use to record interviews over the internet. And it's cool because it's very simple to use. It records the highest quality audio, way better than Zoom, way better than Skype. It's what I use to record all my interviews and I highly recommend checking it out. If you do wanna check it out, smartpassiveincome.com slash squadcast. And if it hasn't happened already, they should have video recording capability too. They're literally in the middle of, of the final pieces of the beta right now at the time of this recording. So by the time you're listening to this, it might be out already. And Jordan and I are a member of a team of advisors there who are offering our help and it's a tool that I use all the time. And I absolutely, absolutely love it. Now let's go to May. In May, we had some really, really amazing women on the show. And to start off the month, we had Prerna, who in fact was somebody who helped me with the copywriting on some of my sales pages. So if you are looking to sell something, you might wanna know, well, what should you do on a sales page? And we talk about uncommon sales page components. So a lot of people talk about, okay, the headline and we structured it and you know it's supposed to connect with people, okay. But there's so many other parts of the sales page that are often overlooked. There's a lot of information that you could find about those other things. But this is the only place where you can find information about things like, how to actually properly share and when to share the guarantee, how to show proof about the thing that you are selling so that the person on the other end will be more confident in the purchase. So make sure to listen to episode 423, 423 with Prerna from contentbistro.com. And then the week after that, we had Anne Hanley 
a fan favorite. In fact, somebody who had been asked, or many of you had asked me to have her on the show. And I'm so grateful for that because she was such a joy. She's a great storyteller. And we talk about the antidote. Yes, the antidote and a lot of anecdotes. Anecdote, right? That's a story. Anecdote about antidotes to marketing, to dry marketing, right? So how do we make our sales messaging more interesting? And that's something that whenever I see pictures of Anne and her gorgeous puppy, like she's always smiling on her Instagram page. And Anne, if you're listening to this, I appreciate you so much. Every time I just see you, I'm like, oh, marketing can be done the right way and you can be friends with your audience and you could share things, you could sell and serve at the same time. And that's a message I think we all need to hear. And again, those two are a pair. 423 with Prerna and 424 with Anne Hanley. Those two work hand in hand. I don't know if they even know each other, but those two podcast episodes for sure. Because 423, specific things about the sales page that aren't talked about very often. And 424, hey, let's make our marketing messages more fun and more connecting, more engaging. Anne Hanley, you're amazing. Thank you. Then June came around and we had some of the most important episodes that we've ever published. In fact, these are podcast episodes that should have been published a long time ago. And this was, of course, when Black Lives Matter and a lot of that messaging started coming out. And we started to focus internally with SPI. We, in fact, have now monthly meetings about what can we continue to do to amplify the voices that have been not so much heard over time? What can we do to get better? What can we do to listen better? And in fact, episode 426, we took a week off the week before. And in episode 426, we reached out to black entrepreneurs in the smart passive income audience. And we featured several stories on the show. And I highly recommend listening to this episode, smartpassiveincome.com slash session 426. And it was so enlightening and so special. And it made such a big impact that we invited even more on to come in in episode 433 at the end of June. It was really important for us, though, to just not go, okay, we did our two episodes, volume one, Black Entrepreneurs Speak Out, volume two, Black Entrepreneurs Speak Out, we're good now, we we did our deed, we did our duty, you know, and we've had all these people step up in different brands say, you know what, here's the thing that we're gonna do, they do it, and then it's like, okay, well, nothing else has changed since then, right? And that's unfortunate. A lot of brands have changed, and we're trying to do better on our end, too. So in addition to these episodes that have come out, we have throughout the year featured Black Entrepreneurs without even making a big deal about the fact that these are black entrepreneurs and going, hey, look at us, we're on the spotlight now, we're, we're actually interviewing black entrepreneurs. No, this is a person who has some amazing stories to share and information that we could all benefit from. They just so happen to be black. Now, around this time of year, we definitely, and I especially, had so many conversations and I just wanna thank every person who I privately had a conversation with who had helped to educate me. And I just wanna thank all of you so, so much. And also for listening and to hearing those episodes, some of the most downloaded episodes during that time. And I'm grateful for that. That makes me feel happy and it feels like things are headed in the right direction. But I think my calling to you, the listener, now here that we're at the end of 2020 is like, let's not just like, go, okay, that was 2020, 2021, okay, new things. Like, let's just continue that. Let's continue amplifying voices and inclusion and making sure that things are right, all right? And it's not gonna be perfect. Listen, and let's just get better, cool? Cool. Now let's go to August. In August, we had some amazing episodes. One of the episodes was a solo show, and I hadn't called out a solo show in a while, 
there's going to be more solo shows next year. I promise you this. I promise you this. So much, no, I can't tell you. My team and I have talked about this. I don't know if we've even announced this yet, but you're going to find out. So make sure you hit subscribe if you haven't already. But there's going to be more of me. You will see this in some way, shape, or form here on the Smart Passive Income feed. That's the only clue. That's all I'm going to say right now. Now we had episode 435, seven terrible traps entrepreneurs fall into and how to get out of them. And this is, of course, across a decade and two years, so 12 years of business experience. Traps that I've seen my students, many of you, and myself fall into and how we can avoid them. And whether you are in one or many of those traps right now, it's still valuable to listen to in case maybe 2021, you're gonna fall into some of these traps. These traps that may involve things like imposter syndrome and not feeling that you're good enough or creating a high bar, creating a high standard and then feeling like that everything has to outdo everything else that you've done and falling into the trap of never publishing because you're too worried about those expectations. Falling into the trap of money and when you start to receive money, what that can do to your psyche and your relationships and how to manage that. So definitely recommend episode 435. And then going into September, we had, September was cool because we had five episodes that month. And the one in the center, 439, that came out mid-September, was I think one of the most underrated podcast episodes that we've ever had. We had a guest on the show who was from a company called Outgrow.co. And Outgrow.co is a tool that once you see it, you're like, wow, this is probably one of the most powerful marketing tools that you could use. And this is a tool that we are exploring right now. And this allows you to create quizzes and calculators. So the kind of new era of lead magnets, if you will. The first era, back when I first started in the, I don't know, 2008 era, lead magnets that worked well were things like giant eBooks and 60-page white papers and reports and these kinds of things that you would just love to have because that information wasn't available anywhere else. Now, there's too much information. So what had been working for a while are quick, consumable lead magnets, cheat sheets, quick start guides, those kinds of things, right? One page, two page resource PDFs. Now, those are becoming abundant. They're becoming something that people just see and they're like, oh, not another one of those. Now, you could still make them work, make them great, have good messaging, sell them sell them, sell the message and have them subscribe to get it, not sell, like have them pay for it. But the new wave of opt-ins or lead magnets is through a quiz or through a calculator, something where there's actual results in some way, shape or form. You enter these numbers, you get this result. Now you can do something with it and you can tell them what to do with wherever they end up, right? You do a quiz, you are a Disney princess, Rapunzel, and now that you are Rapunzel, and I say that because, you know, BuzzFeed has a lot of those quizzes, not the best transition, I will say, but I tried. But these quizzes are very popular, and especially if you propose a question that people wanna know the answer to, right? And this is why this episode, episode 439, was called the number one most underrated way to grow your email list. So if you have been doing lead magnets, if you have been you know, creating ways to get people into your email list, um, besides webinars, I still think webinars are key to growing your list because you get a different kind of person joining your list. But if you've been trying your normal traditional lead magnets and they're not working, a quiz, 
that answers a question that people really wanna know the answer to or how they relate to that question can go a very, very long way. Then at the end of the month, we had a recurring guest. I think one of our top recurring guests on the show had heard a ton of feedback because every time this person comes on the show, it's just he's just bang on with information. And he comes from a different perspective, especially from his degree in psychology. And although he is a Stanford grad, I still talk to him because Cal, which is where I went to school, UC Berkeley, Stanford was our rival, and I was brainwashed in the marching band. I still am. Go Bears, down with the red. But Ramit Seti came on the podcast, and despite being a cardinal, he's a good friend of mine, and I appreciate all the minutes that he's on the show every single time he comes on because it's just, he's not afraid to say the truth. And in this particular episode, we talk about getting your first customers, and he tells so many great stories of people that he's helped and other people that he's seen and how they got over the fear of making your first dollar or getting your first customer. So if you're literally just starting from scratch, that would definitely be a great episode to listen to. Speaking of smart from scratch or starting from scratch, smart from scratch, which is the online course that we had launched. In fact, it was my very first online course that was launched in 2017. It's been updated a couple times in minor cases, but it's still up to date and it still continues to help people. In fact, I wanna give a big shout out to Chris Gilmore, Somebody who, because of the niche that he was in and preparing ahead of time using Smart From Scratch, he had the best year of his life, business-wise, revenue-wise. And Chris Gilmore, who is a student of Smart From Scratch, I know he always credits Smart From Scratch for getting him started. It didn't happen right away, but this year became a huge opportunity for him. Massive success to Chris. Well done, my friend. Anyway, Smart From Scratch, when the pandemic hit, from March, I don't know, 20, essentially, to November 1, we had given away Smart From Scratch. It was a $249 course that we decided to give away for free because we wanted to help people use this opportunity during the pandemic to start something new. We had around 15 or 16,000 people take us up on that offer. And I wanna congratulate you if you did. You have lifetime access to it. You got in at the right time, well done. We gave away three and a half million dollars worth of that course and it felt really good. The team was so excited about that, and it's just been incredible to see people already taking action and starting their thing. So if you haven't started your thing yet, definitely listen to Ramit in episode 441, smartpassiveincome.com slash session 441, or you can check out smartfromscratch.com. It's not free currently, but you can check it out still at smartfromscratch.com. Also wanna give a big shout out to anybody who left a review for Will It Fly, which is if you can't afford or aren't able to invest in Smart From Scratch yet, I would advise checking out my book, Will It Fly? Much cheaper, obviously, without the videos and the details, but that book crossed 1,000 ratings on Amazon in October this year. And I wanna thank you all so much for that because that felt very special. You know, only a very small percentage of books especially in the space that I'm in, you know, business and entrepreneurship, get to a thousand ratings. And to see the other books that are out there that have over a thousand ratings and the authors who I adore and I'm a fan of, it's, it just feels really, really great. So thank you so much to everybody who had left a review for Will It Fly, for super fans as well. We're approaching 500 reviews for that and that's making an impact. I was invited to share that book and actually present about it several times including at Vid Summit, and I gotta give a, a shout out to Daryl Eaves, the founder and, and the uh, director over at Vid Summit, who invited me to do a keynote, 
and he decided to buy a whole bunch of books, super fans, and give them away. And uh, I've been getting so much feedback from the Vid Summit audience and anybody else who picked up super fans. Again, I'm just very appreciative of you. So let's move into October now. Speaking of October, and I had mentioned earlier Brittany Lynn, who is my PR person. Well, if you want to learn exactly what she did and how you can do what she does for me on your own or have an assistant do it too, then definitely check out episode 442. 442 with Brittany Lynn. And then in 444, we had an amazing episode with one of the bubbliest personalities we've had on the show. Every time I see her and listen to her, I smile. And I would recommend you check this out if you're at all interested in Instagram Reels or TikTok for business. And yes, it does work. Kenya Kelly in episode 444, she taught me a thing or two. And actually, one month after that episode went live, I created a Instagram Reel and I used my desk here. I don't know if you could hear that, but this this desk that I just knocked on where I'm recording this episode, I did a little whiteboard drawing and it was just 15 seconds. That video was posted on Instagram Reels and at the date of this recording, it has 650,000 views. It has helped me grow my Instagram channel and helped us get some sales for SwitchPod too because I literally had SwitchPod in that video knowing that that particular video based on what Kenya was teaching me, would potentially do well, and it did. I also repurposed it and put it onto TikTok and got an additional 300,000 subs. So by the time this comes out, I would imagine that that video has been seen over a million times. And it's definitely, I've had videos be seen over a million times, but the one that I'm thinking of took nine years to get there. This one, using Instagram Reels, literally took a month. That's insane. So that's episode 444 with Kenya Kelly. And it's just, that was incredible. November, Matt Diavella, wow. And even though I screwed up and didn't have the right input microphone, Matt brought down the house. I've gotten so much feedback from Matt Diavella. If you don't know who Matt Diavella is, this is episode 447. And Matt Diavella is a YouTube sensation. He uh, practices minimalism and productivity and he has this really funny personality, but he's not like over the top and aggressive. Like I highly recommend you check out Matt Diavella. He's just got really, really well shot videos so well that's like eye candy. You can't take your eye off the videos once you start it. So just beware. But being it the holidays, you might want to potentially check it out because not only are his videos entertaining, but they can teach you a thing or two as well. And Matt just came out with his course, Slow Growth Academy, and we talk about his rise to YouTube fame in episode 447. And that was really amazing. That was absolutely really amazing. And then in December here, in December, we talked at the beginning of the month to Casanova, who had another emotional upbringing and, and stories about his family and just hardships and just unreal situations to a point where you're, you hear it and you're just like, wow, well, if he could do it and get through it, then so can all of us. And I wanna thank Casanova again. I mean, one of the most impactful episodes we've had of the year. And I'm thankful that we sort of uh, had him really close to the end of the year here to think about a lot of the things that we had all gone through this year and Casanova with his podcast. You can check him out, Casanova Brooks. And that's episode 451, just an insane story. And you might remember just, he's so easy to listen to and he always has positivity, even in the tone of his voice, despite what had happened to him. And of course, a lot of things happened to us this year and, and, and I wanna have you listen to that for inspiration moving forward. That's episode 451 with Casanova Brooks. 
And then finally, the episode after that, just a couple weeks ago, you might have heard the mom with eight kids. Just wow. Lisa Canning dot CA, mind-blowing productivity. And the quote that really stuck out to me that I remember was, you can have it all, but you can't do it all. And that's a big differentiation, right? That's a big differentiation. So to every guest who had been on the Smart Passive Income podcast this year, thank you so, so much. To everybody listening right now, whether this is the first episode you listen to or the 52nd of the year, thank you so much. And I cannot wait to serve you. Team SPI, I'm representing them as well in saying that we couldn't be more grateful, but we also couldn't be more excited for what's to come, especially, especially in the space of podcasting. We got some plans. We got some things coming. And no, I'm not just talking about special guests, but potentially other podcasts, potentially more. (laughs) I wanted to say it. I wanted to say it, but I'm not. You're gonna have to wait. And make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss anything. And of course, always come back to the blog when you can, smartpassiveincome.com. If you wanna check out the show notes, we'll link to all the episodes in the show notes that we mentioned today. So that could be your top directory for all of those in case you didn't catch all the numbers or wanna go to them individually. You can go to smartpassiveincome.com slash session 454. Once again, smartpassiveincome.com slash session 454. I'm raising a glass of apple cider to you. Cheers, happy new year, and here's to a successful, healthy, happy, productive, inspirational, motivational, educational 2021. Thank you. I appreciate you. Team Flynn for the win. Peace out, yo. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income Podcast at www.smartpassiveincome.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, everybody. It's Eric Tornberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Mark McCabe. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Eric. Good to be here. So, Mark, we're here to talk about fundraising. We're here to talk about marketplaces. By way of introduction, how did you become an expert on on those two topics? Why don't you give a little bit of your, your backstory? My backstory is that about 10 years ago, and you could probably hear that I, I'm not from the US, I'm, I'm from Ireland. And about 10 years ago, I, I moved to San Francisco and um, started working at an early stage fund, SV Angel, um, which is sort of where I uh, started really getting my investor chops, so to speak. Um, one of our investments um, was Airbnb, and uh, I got to know the founders a little bit and was honestly just kind of bowled over by the business. I was I was obsessed, actually. I just moved to San Francisco, 
Um, I had no credit history in the US, so getting a lease on an apartment was challenging. And Brian was really pitching a vision that uh, resonated with me. And, um, you know, I still think it was at a point where I think most VCs would not have seen themselves staying in an Airbnb, though they definitely liked the business model um, of the company. And, and it was really my first exposure to the potential of marketplaces online. We'd seen eBay, but it was maybe more of an outlier in terms of a consumer marketplace going so big online. And um, I just saw a huge amount of potential in Airbnb to, to open up uh, a version of travel that I, I really uh, respected and loved. And uh, so I started working there at the end of 2011. I was, I was the first business development hire went on to start one of our first verticalized approaches, um, which was uh, Airbnb for business. Um, I started at a hackathon and then it um, slowly snowballed into a, a team of about 40 people. And then uh, my last role at the company was, was director of operations at Samara, which is Airbnb's R&D group. Since then, I've, I've set up a consultancy where I help founders raise capital at Series A and B, um, which is something I, I took from my time at SV Angel and watching Ron Conway um, help founders through this really challenging process. And then uh, about eight, nine months ago, I, I decided to move back to Europe and um, kind of apply what I've learned in the US um, to, to the European scene. Yeah. And let's get into, in, into fundraising. What, what do you think your sort of contribution to the literature is? Or another way of asking the question is, what, what misconceptions do you think people uh, have about fundraising or what, what are things that people don't really fully appreciate about, about the, the craft and the process? That's a really good question. I guess I could talk about some of the common mistakes that I see. Um, but like, firstly, at a high level, I think the thing that people don't fully grasp about it is you're selling an equity in a private opaque market. And my major high level point to most founders is the only way to gain leverage in this process is to run a parallel process that makes it not a buyer of one, that opens up this equity to a marketplace of buyers. And I, I think there's some things that founders do that set them up poorly to, to end up with that result. Um, one is, I think, not really taking the time to plan the process, sporadically starting meetings, but if you don't constrain these meetings within a certain time frame, you can end up in a situation where you have different investors that you're talking to who are at different stages of their analysis of your company. And the problem is once a term sheet does come and a champagne problem, though that may be, uh, it does set a clock. You don't have forever to make a decision on the term sheet. And if other investors are not aligned with this process and are in off pace in terms of the timing, um, they won't be able to, to make up the difference uh, all the time. And you'll be left in a situation of taking what you have or you know, turning down what you don't know you won't have yet, if that makes sense. Totally. Talk about the differences in between raising uh, seed and A and B. I would say there are a lot of similars to a and similarities to A and B. You know, you certainly have more history, um, which means better and more granular data. Um, but there's a huge difference, I think, between seed and A. Um, at, at A, you should be starting to see the signs of product market fit. You should be starting to see retention data and potentially cohort data um, that is stable enough to attract investors. At Seed, likely you have very little of this, even if you are post-launch. You know, if you have six months of data, it's really not quite enough to, to be able to kind of bank on. And 
I think uh, for those of us who have been to Y Combinator's demo day, where you see, you know, the three months of traction, 100% month over month growth, and, you know, it, it is just hard to kind of base your decision on that. Now, what it does mean is that there are other in, more intangible signals at seed that I think are really interesting and personally appeal to me a lot more sometimes than, than looking at metrics. And those are, you know, the team, their alignment in terms of skills and the market that they're going for. And, and this one thing that, again, I'm, I borrowed from, from YC liberally, and I think it's an absolutely perfect summation of, of what you want to look for in a seed investment is insight. You know, what does this founder see that's different, that's unique? Uh, how do they back up that opinion with logic and conviction? Um, what about their background tells you that they might have unique insight into this opportunity? Um, and those are things that that I love to sort of play with mentally and, and work through with the founders um, that I'm talking to. Let's talk about how to run a great Series A process. You mentioned sort of the parallel processing. What are sort of the checklist of, of, of things that, that you think constitute a, a great you know, fundraising process? Oh, how long do we have? Well, I guess I, at a high level, I break it down into four stages. I think there's, there's the preparation stage, and, and this is where you're going to obviously come up with your deck, um, really start building what the process is going to look like, and, and get some reps in as well uh, at a really high level. I can dive into all of that. The second is actually kind of beginning this process, and, and, and that is a really kind of complicated stage. It's, it's quite a stressful stage. There's uh, a lot of meetings back to back. I think you have to manage your energy levels. Um, you're coordinating the largest number of parties that you will at any point during the round. Then you sort of move on to a kind of deeper diligence phase where, you know, especially at Series B, often at Series A, uh, funds are going to want to start looking through your data room, going to want to maybe do customer references. You're managing fewer funds at this point. But the relationship should be strengthening, right? I mean, what's not to be forgotten is that to get anyone to give you 10 or $20 million for your business, there has to be an enormous amount of trust that they have in you. And your job is to build that trust over the process of a round. And in any relationship, trust is built through millions of interactions staggered on top of each other. And I think around should be really a process of, of building this trust, of providing these blocks. So you're at the stage now where you have fewer founders doing deeper diligence or fewer funds doing deeper diligence. And then finally, you get to this closing phase and um, it has some unique challenges of itself. Um, but getting to term sheet, understanding what your options are once you receive a term sheet um, and just trying to navigate that process as best as possible. And, you know, the goal of this is not to help founders maximize the, the price or valuation of their company. It's to give them options. It's to give them uh, a clearer process, which is less stressful and less opaque and a more structured approach to something that ultimately their company likely hinges on. Um, so a really key important moment inflection point for the company. Awesome. Let, let's get into, in, into the weeds on those four stages. So, so starting with prep um, and then also getting your reps in, What's most important or any common mistakes that you see people make in, in, in the prep process that they should be uh, you know, mindful of? I, I think it takes quite a while to produce a deck uh, at Series A and Series B, longer than I think most founders want to give it. And understandably, they're busy. They're trying to run a company at the same time. The metrics can't start going south um, as soon as you start your raise. Um, so you have to be able to, to juggle both. Um, and so I, I think it takes quite a while sometimes to marinate a little bit on what are the strongest points of your business? I find that founders are quite in the weeds. And so as soon as they see a green shoot, it's an incredibly exciting thing for them. 
But sometimes translating that into uh, uh, something that was going to really attract investors is difficult. So what I encourage them to do is really, first off, as a founding team, take stock of where you are uh, in terms of your metrics, your data, what you're seeing in the market, what are the signals that are exciting you. Try to stack rank them, prioritize them, just play around with them and understand how they fit into a narrative. And a narrative is really important because funds are seeing multiple pitches every single day. Um, They have to walk away with really clear takeaways from your pitch. And those takeaways need to be aligned with the strongest elements of your business. So taking time to sort of look at this whole kind of constellation of points and and figure out where they might fit in, I think is really key. Working through a deck uh, and really honing this narrative before you design it, I think is is very helpful as well. I do think enlisting a designer uh, to help you think through your deck once you've kind of really developed this content is helpful, but you know, maybe not the most important element. A part that I think is really important is sort of the timing around once your deck is finished and when you start your process. I like to try to coordinate outreach all within a very short period of time to try and make sure these meetings happen at the same time. That requires a lot of setup. You should be combing through your LinkedIn, understanding where you have warm connections to different funds. You should be identifying which funds you're really going to try to target. And to do that, you need to know, are those funds interested in your space? Are they capable of writing the correct lead check size that you need um, to raise this round? Um, there is quite a lot of legwork that's required in, in just putting together your list of potential funds or target funds. Um, and then one part of the process that I think has, has been super helpful to, to the founders I've worked with up to this point is what I call hardening the pitch. And I try to identify four to five people. They can be Founders who are operating in, in a similar or very narrowly tangential space to where you're working, potentially your early investors who might be very knowledgeable about the space. And I would take them through the deck pre-design to really stress test your narrative, stress test some of the points that you're making, ask where the pitch is falling down or where, where there's just that small kernel of doubt about different points you're saying. And those are points that you may need to reinforce and that's something I often find with a deck the first time a founder pitches me is, uh, you know, they will say at some point something fairly subjective, but base it as fact. And I think those moments are almost invisible, but the VCs are incredibly good at pattern recognition. And truthfully, I, I don't know if I can swear on this podcast. Actually, I should ask first. Please, please. Um, bullshit detection. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to get through that gauntlet. And to do that, I think you really need to understand these kind of critical points where your pitch can fail. Yeah. Uh, I like how you said bullshit detection and I said bullshitting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just to zoom out, what about in context of when people should go out to fundraise? What is the right timing for when people should go out for their Series A? Any frameworks for thinking about that? Well, in 2020, that's been thrown on its head a little bit. Yeah. So let's let's zoom out and assume that things kind of go back to some relative state of normalcy next year where you're not tethered to your computer and you don't yeah. live entirely on a Zoom, which is ironic I'm saying this while I'm on Zoom. But, you know, historically, I think there are periods where people like to say it's a bad time to pitch VCs. August is a bad time. Thanksgiving is a bad time. Christmas is a bad time. I don't think it's quite such a hard and fast rule. If I'm trying to optimize it, if I'm trying to find a really great window, I like January. I kind of think that, you know, and you, you I should ask you this, actually. How do you feel when you come in back into the office in January? Like, you've, you've taken stock over things over, yeah. over the winter break. What are you thinking in January? Motivated, excited, you know, rejuvenated. You know, I'm a believer in, in, in you know, excited for for a new slate and to and to meet companies and uh, 
and, and hopefully partner with them. And I think potentially maybe you have in mind some of the deals that you wish you'd done the prior year or yeah. the deals that you, the, the space that maybe is becoming clearer to you after some time away to take stock on the year. Um, so I think January, February is a great time to try and get into the inbox. Um, I think September through to Thanksgiving is kind of like a perfect block of time where there shouldn't be like wild interruptions. It is true that like a lot of people want to take vacations over the summer. I don't think that's like anything too truly um, groundbreaking. But what happens is if, if there is a period where a lot of people are taking vacation, it does make coordination and timing that little bit harder. It makes it harder to keep everyone quite in lockstep if the two or three VCs you're most excited about can't meet for a couple of weeks. So um, I do think that like if you were in July, maybe you just think of August as you're trying to do the prep and, and yeah. you, you take off in September. But like anyway, January to March, you can start a process without really thinking about it. And do you... um have any hard rules around make sure you have nine months of runway or, 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 or just in terms of when, not in terms of, you know, what month it is, but where the business is. Yeah. I think there's kind of uh, some tropes that go around about that. Not that there's not truth to them. Like certainly if you have four months of cash left, you have less leverage than if you have 18 months of cash left. Uh, unfortunately, I've rarely seen it shake out um, where founders really get much of a choice in the matter. The most important thing is, do you have the right signals in your business that are going to justify this capital? And the business has to show that there's the kind of returns that investors are looking for, that traction and, and growth rates are in the right direction. And, you know, trying to go out and raise, even if you have 18 months of cash left, but not having those signals is not optimal either. So, you know, if you have the advantage to raise capital with a large runway, that's great. It just tends to be more a function of like, how quickly can you get to the right signals? Yeah. Let's go into the beginning stage now, your, your second stage. W what's most important to, to get right there or any common mistakes you, you, you see people, people make there? Couple of things. I think sometimes some founders pack too many meetings in. So like pitching your business is draining. Uh, doing it four to seven times a day, it's, it's, it's really difficult. What I advise founders is to try and limit themselves to four to five pitches a day over a two-week period. They should give them themselves suitable buffer between each meeting. Now, this was more important when you were stressing about that Uber ride uh, across the city or down to the South Bay or whatever. But um, I still think like just having a small window between pitches to resummon your energy and, and get back into the next one is, is a good idea. I think after the fourth or fifth pitch, um, and this is not true of everyone, but I think for the vast majority, it's just hard to summon that same energy that day to do yet another pitch. Um, but it kind of depends. Are you in the first day of this or in the, um, the 14th day of it? I think that's one common mistake. I think another mistake is also just like I said, not, not trying to pack these meetings into two weeks. Like if you don't and you are meeting a fund for the first time in week four, but those funds you met in week one are now into second and third meetings um, or even maybe moving into diligence, um, it's just going to be you almost shouldn't have bothered meeting that that fund three, four weeks in. Now, there is a, a kind of some logic to trying to get work through 15 to 20 of your favorite VCs first. And if you're really confident in your metrics, I'm totally aligned with this process. And, you know, potentially maybe four weeks in reassessing, asking yourself if maybe you need to, to kind of ping a second set of, of funds. But I think you have to be remarkably confident in where you're at with your business and, and maybe have some prior relationships with, with funds that 
that you feel want to get on board. Yeah. So, yeah. Some founders have sort of theology around, you know, they should meet with their B investors first so they could practice or they should, you know, do angels first uh, so they get signal or angels last so that the funds are signal for the angels. Do you have any sort of, uh, you know, recommended frameworks around that or is that a bit too, too cute? I have a lot of people who will say, you know, pitch, pitch the investor I'm least excited about first. I think you can do this in a micro way. I think maybe day one, don't make it the most highly pressurized funds that you're talking to. But I wouldn't leave them two weeks out still, you know. Yeah. But I, I, I think it's okay maybe day one to, to go talk to some funds that you really don't know very well, that you're not sure about whether they're really even a fit for your space. Um, to, to get a couple of extra reps in, I do think this is why the hardening helps so much. You're going to get a much more honest take because the signals that you get once you start pitching are not quite as direct as the signals you might get from, from pitching people you know beforehand as well. And you have to really obviously make sure you solicit that kind of feedback. Yeah. And, and talk about what your goal is in that first meeting with the Series A investor and, and then what you can expect uh, going forward in terms of, uh, you know, understanding a bit about how their process might work and, and how, how it might play out. It's the start of a relationship. They should, they should be getting to know who you are and what you stand for. And they should really walk away with clear takeaways. I think if you are getting into a lot of depth to explain one small point of your business, though you might think to yourself, this is so important that they understand it. It's going to be really hard for them to take that away sometimes if you can't crystallize it. Um, you know, I used to work with this um, really excellent coach. Uh, his name is Ren Vara. He helped a lot of the early Airbnb um, uh, staff out. And he always said, like, people need to walk away with three things um, from any presentation you do. And you should be direct about this. You should actually lay these things out before you start presenting and you should remind them about them at the end. And you actually see it in a lot of really great famous speeches and, and um, through the years. So trying to identify what those three most important points are is actually kind of a challenge, I think, in a pitch. But I, I want them to go away with really clear headlines about why what they're going to repeat to the next partner they want to kind of socialize the deal with, what they're going to repeat to other people inside of the fund to get feedback or, or external uh, parties that they're going to get feedback from. Um, it's, it's a branding mission, essentially. Yeah. And, and put yourself in the, uh, in the head of the Series A or Series B investor. They, they just heard you know, the pitch. Uh, what's going on in their mind and how are they likely to spend the next you know, week, one to three weeks you know, on, on this company? Yeah, and empathy about this is really important. And another, I think, a difficult thing for founders to, to put themselves in the fund's position. And you know this um, better than I do, Eric, but you know, you're seeing so many pitches a day. Um, you're trying to really make sure that you do focus on the ones that stand out to you and allocate them the right amount of time while also not disrespecting, I think, the other startups that you're talking to that don't just immediately sort of grab you. And a lot, I think, especially at seed stage, um, but even Series A, there is sort of an instinctive feel that ends up driving how much effort and time that you put into each company that you talk to. I think they're thinking, I, I, I need to understand this better, obviously, I need to uh, talk to people who may know the space better than me, or if I know the space very well, maybe I can move a little bit faster. And I'm thinking to myself, I need to lock down a second meeting as, as soon as possible if there's a really strong fit. So there can be a wide range of reactions, I think. Um, but founders also forget that, you know, VCs have families and they're people and they're late for many things all the time. And <laughs> 
you know, I, I actually had one situation where there was a, a fund who was really excited after a first meeting and went completely radio silent on my on my uh, the founder I was working with for about 12 days after this first meeting. And this founder was getting fairly irate and kind of saying, this is just, this is what they always do. And, and, and we found out 12 days later that their wife had, his wife had just given birth. And so I think it's really important to try and, and remember this kind of relationship and how you can build it. Now, how you manage the process can really help um, with this as well. Like, I think sometimes there's too much of an emphasis on when can I check in? Can I check in yet? Is, is it time to check in? It's been three days. Is three days the window? Is seven days the window? I, I think there's a reasonable uh, you know, need to, to follow up and try and get clarity. Um, but there are really good ways to do that, ways that can help you build this relationship with the fund that you're trying to pitch. And maybe it's having five or six really interesting articles or whatever influences they are that, that show you something that other people don't quite see. Well, that's good supporting material. It can be really interesting. And it, it can create a conversation about why, why you're doing what you're doing. It can further the understanding that your investor has about your business. So I tried to lead with these things as ways to check in, as ways to keep building the relationship. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, let's go to the, the third phase, the diligence phase. How, how, what are some concrete ways that you think uh, entrepreneurs or you advise entrepreneurs to build trust d during this process? Um, don't say you have a term sheet when you don't have one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I think you have to be, listen, at Series A, there are still things that you see that you know you don't want investors to see. And um, that's that's okay. That's understandable. I think that's that's part of how the game works. You have to try and be as honest and authentic about your business and what you're seeing as humanly possible. You should never really be misleading about metrics um, because the truth is if one fund finds out, I think fairly significant chunk of the funds you're talking to will find out, especially if they're uh, majority based in San Francisco. So honestly, like I was saying at the very start, I think VCs are very good at seeing through this stuff. And yeah. your job is, is not to be a master bullshitter. It's to be someone who really wants to grow a business. It's to be someone who's excited to find a partner who wants to help them scale that business. And it's a wonderful experience to then get to share in that afterwards. So you have to start on the right foot. Yeah. And, and as a entrepreneur, is your goal to, to, to get to your first term sheet? And, and what are the, the things that you could do to maximize uh, that, 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 that happening? A lot of it, obviously, I think still depends on on where your business is at and what its readiness is. And, you know, there's I'll be very honest, like there's not much that I or anyone can really do to change that. Now, there's maybe a few people who can corral investors and pull them into your rounds. And and I think that's great. You're really just pushing the problem down the street. So what can you do to increase your chance of getting a, a term sheet? I think how you present the information and how you get this pitch right is probably the most fundamental building block of, of how you progress with investors. Now, at some point, rubber meets the road. Investors will sort of dig into your metrics. Um, they will look at retention. They will look at cohorts. And if you haven't found product market fit, everything that you've done that you've built up this point can kind of disappear. So I think trying to solicit feedback on when you might be ready, like really engaging your early investors. If you are starting to build relationships with growth equity or series A investors, I think 
asking them, what are the kind of milestones you might want to see that would tell you this business is ready to scale and taking advantage of those early opportunities and those early meetings, but really trying to get this feedback about why your company is ready or not and understanding what narrative is going to make people believe it too. That's the secret. Yeah. What's your stance on uh, deadlines or forcing functions that are, you know, are, are arbitrarily set by the founder? How do you, how do you think about that? Uh, processes can drag on. Uh, that's for certain. You know, I, I've seen typical average is somewhere between two and three months, but I've worked on processes that have last four months and I've worked on them that have last four to six weeks um, at series A and B. Uh, I think once you get to the final phase, there's definitely something that you can do around coordination that can help people get to a result. And the fear is right that if you push funds, that they will pass. And early on, that is a very realistic fear. I think once a fund has done a lot of work, they've committed a lot of hours to investigating your business. Sometimes, you know, if they're going to pass at this point, I think they were probably going to pass anyway. If you do get a term sheet and you have five to 10 funds who are at a similar stage of diligence, I think it's perfectly appropriate to let them know that you've received a term sheet. Uh, you know, there's different opinions on whether you should tell them about the valuation and all these different things. Uh, I'll never forget Delian um, at Founders Fund telling me that the absolute best funders are super direct and honest at this stage. They actually just say it straight up. I'm raising X amount from X funds and, you know, here's why I might want to work with you more. Um, it's not really always about negotiating price. I think it's about finding a partner that you want to work with, that you respect, that you think is going to add a lot of value to the business and to your other shareholders. But I do think that once you get this first term sheet, and especially if it's one you're willing to accept, you have a lot of leverage to move things a little bit faster. You know, I think at this point, it's reasonable to ask that there be clarity on, on how a fund feels about you once they've done all this work. Let's give this example. You get your first term sheet. And it's, yep. it's someone you, you like, um, but you're not sure if they're, they're not your number one, they're your number three or whatever. Um, okay. You get a term sheet. How do you, uh, you know, keep them excited while not sort of like pre-committing uh, and also able to shop to your, to your number one and number two in a respectful way to everybody? Eric, are you, are you going to use all of this against? <laughs> no. Yes. I, so I think when you receive a term sheet, a really important step is to identify a time window that you find acceptable for responding to it. And that doesn't mean like, I'll tell you next year, but you know, a fund will often say, listen, can you tell us by Friday what you're, you know, I've given this to you Tuesday. Can you tell us in three days um, what your answer is? Now, that seems very reasonable. You might know, listen, if I could just stretch that a week, it would make a big difference to me. I think that's perfectly reasonable socializing it. There are delicate ways to do that. I think one thing that you can do is finally start doing your own process on these funds, like potentially ask, can you do reference checks? Explain reasons, maybe why you and your finders won't be able to make a decision in a three-day window and, and ask what is, what is the furthest that the fund would be willing to, to tolerate. Now, this is where I think my opinion and some finders might differentiate, might differ a little bit. Some people will say, listen, you've got to take that term sheet and you've just got to go negotiate the hell out of it with all the other funds that you're talking to. That can work for a lot of people. Um, I think it's it's a higher risk version of the game. Personally, I'd rather just be very direct and honest, say I have a term sheet. I am gonna need to make a, a decision within this window. When can you make a decision by? I have, I have till this time. And once you have this window understood with the first fund that gave you the term sheet, it's so much easier for you to manage the others. 
when you when you receive the term sheet from an X firm, can you tell other firms that X firm gave you the term sheet? Do you have to ask ask X firm for per- permission, or how do you think about that? I I don't think you need to ask for permission. I guess the question is, what do you benefit by by saying it? And that's the question I would I would ask myself. Always always bring it back. Like, how are you? How is this process going to benefit? How's your company going to benefit? I think if founders put themselves more in this place of I'm doing this for my business, it, it, it might might make it a little bit easier sometimes. And and that is who you're beholden to as a founder, as a CEO of the company. Yeah. Uh, so, kind of going back to your question, I guess like, should you say? I think sometimes it's okay to do a bracket. Like a lot of founders will say a top tier fund. Now that yeah. definition is fairly um, uh, subjective, I guess. Yeah. But I think the most important thing to clarify is it's a term sheet I'm willing to take. Yeah. Um, this is an offer I am willing to take, and and uh, I need you to understand that so you can take the rest of the process, uh, as, you know, the way you'd want to know um, about it. Yeah. You mentioned that uh, you know different people have different opinions on sort of you know what to do when you ha- when you have a term sheet. What are other things within this craft, just like any other craft? That that you have sort of a different opinion, perhaps than than the mainstream or or some other people that that come to mind for you, just about fundraising generally. I think I've touched on a lot of them. For me, a lot of it comes down to empathy. Listen, I've done when I've worked with founders, I tend to find that I do a lot of phone calls around 11 p.m. midnight, and late into a process, I know what that means. Um, but I think if you can have empathy and understand that this is really difficult on both sides, I mean, let's look at it from a VC's perspective. And I hope you don't mind me sort of stepping into these shoes um, with you. I'd, I'd love if you can add to it as well. But I'd say 2% of deals you see, you know immediately. You love it, right? And let's say 20 to 50% of deals you know you don't like immediately. And there's this huge bucket of deals in the middle, I think, that fall into a like I could look like a fool for passing, I could look like a fool for investing. And and that's a really difficult, and then multiply that by however many companies that fund is seeing per week. So I think that's a very difficult situation to be in. And if you put yourself in those shoes, put yourself in like the situation of having to commit a large sum of money in front of your peers to a company, um, all of these deals end up public, they end up on email newsletters that people are reading, they end up, you know, on TechCrunch or wherever, um, you, you, you fail in public, I think, as a VC. Quite, quite a difficult position to be in. If you have empathy for this, I think it'll make your approach mentally so much different than if your approach is, they don't get it. Like, you know, like VCs are, are you know, are founders that can't find companies or I don't know, like they, do, they just create these personas that are really not very accurate it's an incredibly nebulous and, and challenging job. And, um, and I think you just need to understand that position. Yeah, no, no that's, uh, that, that's instructive. I, I want to segue into marketplaces a, a bit. Okay. And I, I want to take it where, wherever you, you find most interesting. We could talk about how to fundraise for marketplaces. We could talk about uh, if you're evaluating marketplaces from an investing perspective, what, what, what's important to look at. We talk about you know, marketplaces of the future or where you see opportunities now. Where do you think your most sort of uh, interesting thoughts on marketplaces are? And let, let's let's go there. Okay. Well, let's look at some dynamics maybe that I look for when I am I'm looking at marketplaces. Marketplaces are just one of the most challenging types of businesses uh, to start, and it's because there's so many parties involved. There's a supply side. There's a demand side. If if you look at companies like DoorDash, there's 
it's it's even more complex i think and i think one thing that is really missing from i guess the theme of what is it you should be looking at in a marketplace is oftentimes a really crazy founder uh i think it's someone who either has an incredibly steely disposition or is very resilient because there's a cold start that exists in marketplaces that i think is really psychologically challenging to overcome and um makes traction really challenging early on so founder mindset is something that i've looked at a lot and i guess i can mention maybe a couple of of the companies i have invested in that i think fit this mold obviously airbnb like brian might be the most resilient founder i've ever met Paul Graham described the Airbnb founders as cockroaches they'd survive a nuclear disaster. Uh, similarly, I think when I've invested in companies like Chef or Papa, uh, both of them which came out of Y Combinator, I don't think those were the companies that all the investors were flocking to at demo day. And I think that can be quite difficult to be in that position as a founder at demo day. But you would not have known this talking to these founders. they were 100% resolute and determined um that that this was going to be successful and they probably are hearing from partners inside YC you know this could be tough or like maybe we need to adjust this a little bit i think they get a sense about where they stack rank in the batch i i really do think that the founders coming out of out of each y combinator batch sort of understand how the partners feel about their business and where they sort of rank and if you're doing a marketplace you probably have less data less signals um and a more challenging path upwards afterwards so uh, resilience is incredibly key in terms of like the fundamentals of the business and how you're approaching it a couple of things i do love to see one is really unique supply two is disintermediating a process that is very popular and i think finally is something where you can see a positive reinforcing effect between supply and demand So what do I mean by that because that's kind of a complicated topic. Let's look at at Airbnb. We started growing internationally. I say we, I mean Airbnb. I'm no longer at the company. Um Airbnb started growing internationally long before they really planned to. And this happened because we had guests from Paris staying in properties in New York. and you know they're staying in a strange loft in New York with like a, a shark head on the wall and it's the most conversational thing that they've done all year and they go back to wherever they were in in Paris and maybe they don't become a host themselves actually there was there's rarely an indicator to us that tons of Airbnb guests were becoming hosts what actually happens is they tell 10 other people i stayed in this loft in Brooklyn and there was this shark head on the wall and this conversation travels around and someone within that group becomes a host so our as we added more guests to the platform it created a virtuous cycle where we were adding more supply and supply was always the hardest thing for airbnb to to add in each market a new host was worth a completely different thing to the next market you couldn't really set up partnerships at scale that would generate new host listings it's just a very difficult proposition to sell through a partnership like take 50 dollars off uber and open up your homes to other people like it it's a hard proposition to sell in that moment and so having this kind of positive reinforcing effect between your demand and your supply 
I think is, is something I try to understand early. Like, is that possible? Like, can the demand fuel the supply to a certain degree? And that can be quite hard to see at seed stage, but um, those are sort of the dynamics that I, I look for the most. Um, okay, that's a great place to wrap. Mark, for people who want to learn more about, about your work and go deeper in some of these topics, uh, where, where can you point them to? Uh, come find me on Twitter, uh, at McCabe, M-C-C-A-B-E. Um, I'm pretty responsive on there. Um, my, my DMs are open, as they say. And um, yeah, thanks very much for, for inviting me on the show. My guest today has been Mark McCabe. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. It's been a great episode. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc. suggestions or feedback head over right now to twitter and facebook and like share and get involved join us next time please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice the opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services